In order to keep bringing you guys tons of free content, we work with brand partners who you'll hear from in this episode, including an advertisement from Zopabank. Hey guys, welcome to a brand new episode of the Talk 20s podcast, the podcast that helps you figure your shit out. And today is no different because joining me in the studio is mortgage advisor, Dan Knott, known as Dan Does Mortgages. We are going to be walking you through the house buying process in the UK, step by step. Here at Talk 20s, we want to make home ownership more accessible in the UK. And to do that, we first need to start with fully understanding the process. None of this financial jargon that's going to trip us up. In this episode, we break down deposit mortgages, solicitor processes, and so much more. So grab a pen and paper, turn the volume up and listen in. Just quickly before we dive in, if you enjoy listening to this episode, please give us a follow or subscribe and let's get on with the show. Hello Dan, welcome to the podcast. It is wonderful to have you here. I've been following your content for ages and I think that you are really doing your bit to help first-time buyers in the UK right now. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. I am so excited to have this conversation because we haven't talked about buying your first home on the podcast for well over a year now. Um, and it's something that I think is a a difficult topic to discuss because when we're in school, buying a home is not something that you are interested in because it just doesn't, it's not relatable. You're not, you don't want to be 15 learning about mortgages and how they work because you've got nothing to really apply it to. But sometimes when you get into your twenties, your thirties, when you do start thinking about buying your first home, it is something you want to learn about. Where do you go to learn these things? It feels like quite a challenging thing. What's your view on that? Yeah, so I completely agree. Um, a lot of people don't think about buying a home until the time comes, which is often, or is sometimes, too late for people. These days, fortunately, there is a lot of information online, whether it is through a mortgage advisor who's a mortgage advisor who's available on social media, like myself, as many others, or through financial influencers, as we have today. Um, so yeah, hopefully information is becoming a little bit more available, but yeah, maybe still not available enough. Mm-hmm. And also I think that every time we watch stuff on like TikTok, it's always in like in bite-sized chunks and it's random snippets here and there. It might be something that's being fed to you in the algorithm and it's never the full thing step-by-step. Step. So we're going to go through home ownership in the UK step-by-step step in this episode. Perfect. Yeah. And hopefully make sure people have an understanding um, and a balanced understanding, mm-hmm. most importantly. Mm-hmm. So let's start with where we're at in our home buying relationship. I, I don't actually know. Are you a homeowner yourself? You're a mortgage advisor. So I would assume that you are. I am. So I bought my first home that completed in 2019. I'm actually in the process of moving home again. Okay. Uh, so I've had an offer accepted on the property that I'm buying. Congrats. Um, and we've just had some offers in on our property this week. So, so it's like a whole new thing that you're learning about now, which is the whole buying, the, the selling the first home that you bought essentially. Yep. So it was a busy weekend this weekend, had um, 22 viewings on our home. Um, so it was busy, lots of people in the house, lots of questions, um, lots of tidying, but yeah, hopefully um, we'll have an offer accepted this week. And if you could look back at your, like yourself that obviously bought a home for the first time in 2019, like what would you want to tell that person? Because I feel like someone listening right now could probably relate to what you felt back then. So when I bought a home in 2019, I actually wasn't in the industry as a mortgage advisor. Mm-hmm. And actually myself, I didn't have much of an idea um, of the process of what I needed to do, of my own circumstances, or even what my goals were. Um, 
you know, my mortgage advisor at the time, in my opinion, there was a lot of jargon. Yeah. I didn't really understand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we just wanted to buy the house. So we just went with it. So, you know, I think it's important to, you know, what I try to do is make mortgage advice accessible, digestible, hopefully even enjoyable. And for that reason, I think it's important that people work with somebody who they trust, they feel comfortable with. Um, and yeah, I think that's a really important thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, my home buying experience, I also bought my house in 2019, literally just before the pandemic. It was yeah. so lucky. Um, lucky in two reasons, because our house, the previous owner had lived in it for 40 years. Um, I don't want to know if she died in the property because that would just genuinely freak me out. Mm-hmm. I don't want to know that, but maybe she did. Um, I'm, I just tell myself that she went into a care home and she didn't actually <laughs> die there. Off on a tangent there, but still. Um, and home ownership for me in the beginning, it was it was really hard because there was, this wasn't the first house we fell in love with and put an offering on. Uh, we fell in love with another house, thought we went through all the right procedures to like, you know, put an mm. offering and stuff like that and missed out on it. Um, and it was kind of, it was our first realization that like, oh, this house buying stuff ain't so easy. Um, and I felt like the whole process was just like filled with jargon, so many questions. Um, and now we're coming up to, well, next year will be our, you know, we've gone in for a five year fix on our mortgage. So our whole plan is now, now we have to remortgage and do all of that. So that's a whole new lesson for me, but I am so interested in making, you know, the home buying process as easily digestible as possible. So I'm excited to dive in. So am I, let's get, let's get stuck in. So why would you, do you think that buying, I mean, there's lots of things going around on the internet nowadays, like you should rent for as long as you, as long as you can, or, you know, what do you think the benefits are to buying versus renting? So I would say in Britain, you know, culturally, um, people value security. Yeah. And that's something that can come with owning a home. It is a commitment. And sometimes people fear um, being tied down. But for most people at some stage, a goal is to to own their own home. I always say there's sort of four questions you should ask yourself before buying a home. One, um, are you able to part with the upfront costs? So, you know, solicitor fees, advice fees, deposit, survey fees. Two, can you afford the ongoing cost of home ownership? Mortgage payments, utilities, insurances, maintenance. Mm-hmm. Um, three, will home ownership um, add some value to your life? So do you value the security? Um, are you happy knowing that potentially you may have less money to spend on going out with friends, holidays, um, and these sorts of things? And four, what are the alternatives? Renting, living with parents, you know, and you need to weigh up the pros and cons of all options. You know, if somebody's going to go on, you know, planning in a year's time to go traveling for a year around the world, it's probably not doesn't the right, it's not the right sense. time to buy. No. You know, it's not, it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean it won't be at a late stage in life. So it's not for everybody, but in the UK, a big goal um, for people is, is security and it is owning their own home. And I think that isn't just home ownership. People prefer, you know, generally, um, you know, an employed position for that security. You know, Britons go abroad um, and they want to go to the same holiday destination every year mm-hmm. because they feel comfortable. And yeah, home ownership, it's, it's a big commitment, but it can be a fantastic, a fantastic one. A quick note from our sponsors, Zopa Bank, who are here to help you with your personal finance in the Zopa app. Zopa have a for you section on their app that gives you helpful, personalized insights like reviewing your subscriptions, checking for cheaper broadband and energy bills. The first thing that you need to do is link your accounts using open banking. Once your accounts are connected, the available data will let Zopa understand your finances and give you personalized insights. It will also analyze your credit file and check your Zopa eligibility. 
Best of all, it's all free and at your fingertips always. So you can make sure you're making the best, most informed choice with your money 24-7. Download the Zopa app now to find out more. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's look at getting started then. You are wanting to make the very first steps to buying your first home. You think it is the right decision for you. What do you need to know first? So first of all, um, the first thing you need to consider is that you will need a deposit, you know, something with home ownership, um, you know, in other areas, a mortgage advisor like myself can help you to work around certain issues. However, if you don't have a deposit, there's not going to be many options there for you. So for a first time buyer or for any or any person who's purchasing a residential property, you're going to need a minimum of a 5% deposit on most occasions. There are some certain products available at the moment where it's 0% deposit. However, that's for a very select bunch of people. What okay? select bunch of people? So there are certain products that have became available in the last year. Um, often, you know, targeted originally for people who had um, been been renting um, and could show evidence that they had successfully made rental payments over um, the last year. Okay, yeah. However, you know, that product isn't going to be available to 99% of buyers. So for the 99%, it's going to be a 5% deposit as a minimum. Now, the way that deposits work is that with a 5% deposit, you're going to have a certain amount of mortgage products available to you. Okay, a certain amount of interest rates. When that deposit increases to 10%, your options will expand, hopefully access better deals, and that will continue with 15%, 20%, 25%. It's not always completely linear, but that's generally the benefit of increasing a deposit. But some of us only have 5%. Um, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that if you can make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, with your deposit, you know, most commonly with first-time buyers, it will come from one of two sources, savings accrued over time or gifted money from parents. Um, for those people who are fortunate enough to be gifted money, it's extremely common. Um, you know, lenders across the market will accept this. Um, and what, you, what your parents or another family member will need to do is to sign a document stating that the gift is a gift, it's non-repayable, and they've got no interest in the property. Okay. So they can't just transfer it into your savings account? Like, you will track that, you will know? So, so they, can, they can transfer it into yeah. your savings account, and that's fantastic because there'll be a paper trail of the money. But lenders at some point, most of the time, will want the, the gifter to sign a document stating that it is a gift and it's not a loan, mm-hmm. essentially. Okay, interesting. Um, So there are, I think, you know, it's very easy to look on the internet and see a lot of stuff about the lifetime ISA, which is one of the ways where you can save your first home and actually get a little bit topped up from the government. Please, can you tell us the pros, but also the cons to a lifetime ISA? Yeah, so the lifetime ISA is a fantastic opportunity for many buyers. So the lifetime ISA is an individual savings account created for the purpose of helping people to either buy the first home for retirement or for both. Okay, so with a lifetime ISA, you can contribute £4,000 annually and the government will make a 25% bonus payment on top of that. Okay, so if you contribute £4,000, there's essentially £1,000 you're getting pretty much for free. So it's a great opportunity. You don't have to do the £4,000 though, don't you? You could just do £1,000 and they would top it up. £250 that year. Correct. So the £4,000 is the limit. Um, You can pay in a lot less than that. You Mm -hmm. can make lump sum payments. You can put little bits in as and when you can. It's completely optional. You can put in, you know, over the years, £4,000 each year if you were maximising it. Most people probably aren't going to be able to. And if you're buying with a partner, you can both benefit from your own lifetime ices. We did that. And I think it was super beneficial for us because it worked for us. But I know there are some limitations that we're going to go through. But one of the things I will say 
and you can tell me if this is still allowed, but mm-hmm. I don't know if it is because I'm not a mortgage advisor, but I saved all of my stuff that was going into my lifetime ISA because you get penalized if you withdraw it, anything from it. So I saved it all into a separate savings account until like the very end of March slash beginning mm-hmm. of April because it changes on the, at the tax year, which is April the 6th. Mm-hmm. And then I transferred it all across before the end of the tax year so that I could access that money if I was ever stressed or anything about about that. And then I transferred it all in because I didn't want to face a penalty by putting money in and then having to withdraw it. Is that sensible? Is that not sensible? So that can be sensible because there are potential fees if you withdraw your money, not for the purpose of buying a home or for retirement. So let's say you put a thousand pounds in and the government give you a 25% bonus on top of that. If you were then were to withdraw that money, let's say to to go on to spend on a holiday, Mm -hmm. there'll be a 25% fee attached to that on your contribution and the government's and you'd actually end up with less, less money. Yeah. So you lose the bonus and a little bit of your savings. And I didn't want to do that. So that's why I put it somewhere else. And then when I was certain that I was like, okay, I don't need that money. Then I transferred it into my lifetime ISA. Is that a hack or is it not a hack? <laughs> um, I suppose it is a hack. Yeah. Um, it's just being cautious. It's yeah. being cautious with your money, you know, not just lumping it all in. Um, you know, you need to know, am I definitely going to use this money for a home? Yeah. Do I need it for other things? Because you can't simply just put it in and, and pull it out um, without I think when you're young penalties. and you're in your 20s as well, like you never know when your car's going to break down or, you know, you're going to have to pay a big bill for whatever or, you know, you change job roles and, you know what I mean? And like, you just don't know. So that's, I think that's why I went down that road because I was like, you know, I was in my mid to, mid to mid 20s. Like you never know what's going to come. Exactly. So yeah, it's important to be cautious. And another consideration, um, so there are considerations, as you've alluded to, um, that we need to be careful of with a lifetime ISA. So two of those, um, the first one is that you can only benefit from the lifetime ISA after you've been making payments for 12 months. Yeah. Okay. So if you are looking to buy a home in the next 12 months and you don't have a lifetime ISA yet, it's maybe not going to be for you because if you put that money in, and then you try and buy a house next week. If you're going to pull that out, there will be a fee attached. Does it have to be open for 12 months or does it have to have 12 months, like you have to have paid something in and then like, what's the rules on that? So 12 months following your first payment. Okay. So as Martin Lewis often says, um, Martin Lewis has mentioned a few times online, open it, put a pound in. Even if you're not ready to buy yet, open it, put a pound in, the clock's ticking and it's there for when you need it okay. in the future. Mm-hmm. And there's another limitation that's really key about the lifetime ISA. There is. So this is a big one and it's something I get asked about all the time. Mm. Um, and it's an issue um, of which is, is a growing issue. So to, to benefit from the lifetime ISA, you can't purchase a house for more than £450,000. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and this rule has been there for the last six years or so. And over those six years, house prices have went through, you know, have went through the roof. So for people who maybe were looking to buy a house for £425,000 a few years ago, that house may now cost £475,000 and therefore they can't use the lifetime ISA. Um, Even though it's like £25,000 difference off the thing, that that's crazy. That means that people who have started paying in can't then actually use it without exactly. facing a penalty. Exactly. So especially you know, in areas such as London, yeah. where house prices are particularly high, this is a concern and it's a question I get asked on social media on the, all the time. Will they increase the limit? If you would ask me, should they increase it? Yes, they should. Will they? Who knows? Know. I do know though that Martin Lewis to mention him again. He's on a little bit of a campaign at the moment, yeah. trying to to get that that limit raised. Um, will it happen? We'll have to wait and see. Are there any lower brackets you should know about? No. No. Okay. So you can buy a house of any any 
value up until 450k. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So if you're if you're looking to look in a set, looking for a first time property in a, a certain area and everything you're looking at is below 450k with good margins, you would recommend the lifetime asset as long as you're not buying in the next 12 months, it's a no-brainer. Okay. So what do you need to know after you've got you saved your deposit and you've got maybe what you think is roughly our five or 10% deposit. What do you need to know next? So next, um, it's time to speak to a mortgage advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, even before you've saved your deposit, yeah. it's never too early to speak to a mortgage advisor. You know, even if you're thinking, you know, I'm not looking to buy for another five years, just have a chat, run through, you know, what you think your goals might be, what your income looks like, what you think it will look like in the future, what the potential hurdles are that you see, just have a chat, get an understanding of what the process looks like. You know, if you think I want to buy a house for X amount, get an idea of what your income needs to look like roughly, Mm -hmm. get an understanding of what your credit looks like. A mortgage advisor is there to hold your hand through that entire process and how long that process takes is different for everyone. So for some people, you know, when I work with my clients, some people I might speak to them on a Monday, we might have a mortgage application in by the Friday. Others, I'll work with them for years Mm. because, you know, they really do get in touch early and we'll make a plan. We'll lay the foundations and we'll make a plan to move forward. Um, So yeah, mortgage advisors is there to save you stress, time, money, hassle, do the legwork and just make sure that when the time comes, you're achieving that goal on time and first time. Mm -hmm. I guess the only downside is, would you have to pay initial fees to a mortgage advisor straight up front then? Every advisor is different. Okay. So when you speak to an advisor, have that conversation with them. Um, you know, am I am I tied in? Mm-hmm. Um, when are the fees payable? What are the fees? Some advisors will speak during, some advisors will charge during an initial conversation. Some on review of documentation, some on application submission, some only when you get your mortgage offer and some even when you complete. Mm-hmm. And some, it might be a breakdown across different areas. Mm-hmm. Have that chat, get an understanding um, and move forward from there. So looking at your credit then, I think Mm -hmm. there's a lots of taboo that goes around about credit scores and what you need and what you don't need before you buy your first house. Can we myth bust? Absolutely. So this is an area, um, in my opinion, in my opinion, where there's some of the most, where there's, you know, a lot of misinformation online, um, a lot of blanket advice, which there never should be for any, any of this. Mm -hmm. Um, but Your credit score and your credit report, two different areas. So your credit report is essentially like a school report. Okay. (laughs) That details how you've behaved in terms of borrowing (laughs) over the years. Have you passed? (laughs) Yeah. And your credit score is just like the grade at the end of it. Oh, okay. Okay. But mortgage lenders actually look into the credit report. They're more interested in the credit report. Okay. They want to see, you know, what's been happening over the last six years. Um, You know, six years they go back. Yes. So information will stay on your report for six years. Okay. Okay. So your credit report will include information such as your personal details, active accounts, current accounts. Are you on the electoral roll? Do you have any financial associations Um, with your debts? You know, how much is the debt? What's the monthly payment? Have you paid it back on time? Have you had any mishaps, any arrears, defaults, CCGs, anything worse? It's all going to be on there for a lender to see. Now, mortgage lenders, um, they're not so, so much interested in the score. They want to see the information within the, rec- the report. So each lender has their own criteria for mortgages when you're buying a house. Um, so for example, one lender may have, you're not allowed any mispayments in the last two years. Another might have, you're allowed two. Mm-hmm. You know, one might have, you're allowed, you know, one CCG, 
However, it needs to be for a certain amount or below a certain amount. Other lenders may say you're allowed no CCGs at all. Now, every lender looks at a different credit report provider, so Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, and each of those will hold different information about you, essentially. So, you know, it's, it's quite a complex part of the process um, in terms of, you know, it can be if you do have adverse credit, um, but that's why we've got to make sure your credit is in the best position possible. And speaking to somebody early and getting that reviewed is going to give you the best possible chance of that. But when I mentioned earlier about blanket advice, so the solution for everybody in terms of, you know, their credits, their credit report or their credit score and what it needs to be is individual. You know, who, when, why, you know, what is your goal with your credit? Is your goal to, to buy a home? If it is, if that is your ultimate goal, speak to somebody who understands credit reports, let them see where you're at. And then if any changes need to be made, they can advise. There's a lot of blanket advice such as, you know, you need to take out more debt to build your credit history. Yeah, you have to get a credit card yeah. to like build your credit. And sometimes that might be the advice, but mm. it's not for everybody. Right. For example, um, a conversation I have quite a bit is with young first-time buyers, maybe have a lack of credit history. Yeah. If you've got a lack of credit history, credit score might be average. It might not be terrible, it might be average, but it's not the best out there. Mm-hmm. But sometimes with these first-time buyers, they might have a 15% deposit. If that's the case, quite often an average credit score is enough. Mm-hmm. So if your ultimate goal is to buy a home, they might not need to do much else, you know, depending on individual circumstances. So it does boil down to the individual, but speak to somebody, let them see your credit report and let them tell you what does or doesn't need to be done. Mm-hmm. You see those kind of people like um, saying about uh, don't send um, like money to your friends and put the reference as like sex money or drug money yeah, <laughs> because, yeah, yeah. because your mortgage advisor is going to see that, right? So, right. It's a myth. So <laughs> is that a that myth? Actually, so if, so references like that, I say them all the time. Do you? <laughs> Even worse references than that all of the time. <laughs> Lenders don't care. Right, most okay. of the time. Right. Lenders are relaxed. Common sense approach. It's just somebody putting a silly reference. Okay. It happens. Now, ideally, might you want to avoid it because a mortgage advisor is going to look through your bank statements <laughs> and might have to ask you about this and say, you know, just to check, what is that reference? <laughs> um, so save an awkward conversation. Yeah. Maybe try and keep it out. But most of the time, depending on the reference <laughs> and the severity, um, lenders don't really care. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's not too bad if that is something <laughs> that you do with your friends. Um, so in terms of next steps then, you need an agreement in principle. Now, I think this is a, a jargon term that I had no idea what an agreement in principle was. Mm-hmm. But can you explain as basic as you can what, what an agreement in principle is? Yeah, so an agreement in principle is a document from a mortgage lender stating that in principle, they would consider lending to you X amount, okay? So an agreement in principle includes a credit check. All right. So when you're working with an advisor, they will run through your income, your expenditure. They'll run the credit check um, on an informed basis because they have seen that with the lender. And the lender will state, without having seen any documentation at this time, without having complete, uh, having completed, you know, underwriting in full, in principle, we would consider this amount. Mm-hmm. Now, if an advisor gives you one of those, they're doing it because 
Um, they're confident in your ability to borrow that amount of money. Mm -hmm. Therefore, when I give that to you, you're confident in your budget and you know you can get out there on the house hunt, get stuck in knowing I can borrow this amount. The, these properties are realistic um, and yet really enjoy the house hunt. And when you do make an offer, an estate agent's going to, going to ask for that from you. Right. Reason being, um, it shows you're a serious buyer mm -hmm. and you, you're going to be able to buy the property. So should you look at properties without an agreement in principle? I would always say get an agreement in principle first, just it gives because it gives you an understanding of where you're at. Mm -hmm. Okay, it gives you an understanding of where you're at. Um, you know, you're not going to turn up, view a house, fall in love with it. Yeah. You know, design it with your partner in your head. <laughs> um, you know, plan to get the bifold doors in, and then find out you can't afford it. Yeah. Um, get an agreement in principle first, and as well as that, it just means when you are making offers, you're prepared. Um, you know, if you're making an offer and somebody else is. Ideally, you want to be the person with the agreement in principle. Mm -hmm. It shows you're ready, you're saving any further delays um, because the sellers want to sell and they want somebody who's reliable. Mm -hmm. I think maybe going back, in, back a step, there's actually another term that I think is, is also new when you're stepping into the world of... Um, property and buying your first house and that is loan to value and that is kind of understanding obviously how much you can borrow can we break that down because I also think that's another jargon term that gets thrown around yeah so your loan to value is your loan amount expressed as a percentage against the property value mm -hmm. now to make that more simple <laughs> if a property is worth a hundred thousand pounds and your loan I mean, amount. I mean, there aren't many nowadays, no, but no, if for, in an ideal world. For simple maths, yeah. if it's worth £100,000 and your loan amount is £90,000 because you've got a £10,000 deposit, that's 90% loan to value. Yeah. Okay. So if your deposit is 10%, your loan to value is 90%. Yeah. Okay. So the lower the loan to value, generally speaking, the better mortgage options you're going to have. Um most of the time. Mm -hmm. And is it true that you can normally borrow about 4.5 times your salary? Or is that a myth? So mortgage lenders will generally lend up to a maximum of 4.5 times. Now, there are some lenders who will go higher to, to 5.5 times sometimes. Okay. However, again, it's for a very select amount of people, um, generally higher earners. Okay, so that is possible, but most of the time it's going to be up to a maximum of 4.5 times. The things that the things that contribute to bring that down are debts. Um, some lenders may just not go at 4.5 times, having children, um, what your credit history looks like. So for most people, it'll be a maximum of 4.5 times in an ideal world. Okay, so if you are earning like say 25,000 pounds a year, mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to borrow anything more than like... Let me do the maths. £112,000. Was that good maths? £112,500. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. um, um, in theory, that's the absolute max yes. that you could borrow, but you'd still need your deposit or in like... That you could borrow. borrow. Okay. Now, some lenders may go just above 4.5 times right. um, for, for that person. Okay, but yes. Because you're buying as a, as a solo, as an individual as well. Yeah, and just because some lenders, you know, it's not always exactly 4.5. Right. Some lenders might do 4.4, some do might do 4.6. Right. 4.5 is a good indication though. Um, so yes, up to 4.5 times if their credit history is perfect, yeah. no children, no debts. Um, I guess that obviously we are now highlighting the fact that, that it makes it easier to buy in a couple then because you're combining two lots of salaries then. So it is, it's so easier to, to buy in a couple. It yeah. is. So, you know, that's something that a lot of people face when they buy and buy themselves. Um 
just not being able to get the loan amount yeah. that they want for the dream home. Um, something I come across every day. So yeah, it's definitely easier in a couple. And you end up obviously needing a really chunky deposit then to kind of be able to buy your property like as an individual because you're not able to borrow as much. Exactly. And especially at the moment, um, you know, it's, it's hard for people to save a deposit. Yeah. It only seems to be getting harder. Yeah. Um, so that's why lifetime ices and tools, tools like that, mm -hmm. um, it's important to be aware of them and try and give yourself the best possible chance because it is hard. Mm-hmm. So, um, when you're going, so you've got your agreement in principle, you understand your loans of value, you understand all of that. You can now step out on your house hunt. This is an exciting time. It, it feels mad that we've obviously spoken yeah. for nearly, for so long and we're only at the point yeah. where we can view property. Like that's how much of the, you kind of need to be prepared. Mm -hmm. um, and that can feel like a really long time beforehand. But yeah. you're, you're now in the situation where you can go and look at properties. And if you fall in love with one, you could potentially buy it. That's an exciting time, right? It's the most exciting part. Yeah. We always, I always say, you know, nobody wants a mortgage. They want a home. Yeah. They want a big kitchen and a big garden. That's why, you know, you let, you let the, an advisor do the, the boring stuff. Yeah. The, you know, the, the stressful stuff. And then you can just enjoy the house hunt. Um, but without doubt, it's the most exciting part. It's the funnest part. You know, you're on right move every night. Yeah. You're designing the house that you want. Um, yeah, that's the best part. And, you know to give yourself the best possible chance when that time comes around, it is the agreement in principle. And to give yourself the chance of, you know, the best chance of success when you do make an offer, it's, you know, speaking to estate agents, communicating well, showing that you are reliable and you are keen. Mm. Um, and yeah, you know, showing as much interest in the property as possible because sellers don't just want the best offer. They want the best offer from a reliable buyer. Yeah. Are there any pitfalls that you see maybe from previous clients? I mean, you do not have to name and shape, please don't. Mm -hmm. um, but anything you see that people may be slipping up at this point or things where you see like people missing out? Because I think that that for us was really heartbreaking. Uh -huh. So is there anything that our audience or listeners could be aware of when they're starting that house hunt? It really is just a lack of preparation not knowing what your your mortgage options are before you get there, mm. um, not having had somebody review your credit report. Um, it rate that, I know we've covered it already, but that is the most important part. Mm -hmm. Making sure that you spoke to somebody, you know exactly where you stand. When you do view that home and you do fall in love, you're confident in your ability to actually make the purchase rather than getting emotionally invested and then finding out maybe it's not going to happen. You're often at an advantage though, if you are a first time buyer, because you are basically at the end of a chain. Yeah. Can you explain the whole chain process and how that tends to work? Because I know that can be huge frustration for so many people buying yeah. a house. So, so sellers like a buyer who is chain-free. First-time buyers are chain-free. What that means is you are not selling a property before buying one. Mm -hmm. um, so when you're part of a chain, let's say at the moment, I am selling my house. Yeah. Okay. So at the moment I'll be involved in a chain. So the house that I'm buying, they will, but for me to buy that house, they will have to wait for me to sell my house. Mm -hmm. um, and the house that I'm buying, I will have to wait for them to buy a house for me to be able to buy their house. And there's so much paperwork involved that this is not just like yeah. oh, a few days, like this can go on for some time. So there's so many moving parts and that's why with a first time buyer, sellers love it because you're not selling anything. You're ready to go, you're keen. Mm -hmm. And the moment they can sell, you're generally ready to move in. Mm -hmm. That is really good. Um, so you have put an offer in on a house that you love mm -hmm. and it has been accepted. <laughs> What happens next? Because you don't just get handed the keys, do you? 
You don't. There's a there's a long there's a long <laughs> road yet. There's a long road yet, um, but hopefully a worthwhile one. Mm-hmm. So at that time, um, let's say one of my home buyers gets in touch and they've had an offer accepted. We'll get back on the phone. We'll have another telephone call. We'll resource the market again to make sure they're getting the best possible deal at that time. So it might not be the same person, the same lender who they've got an agreement in principle with. Oh, okay. We're going to make sure they're getting the best possible deal at that time. We'll discuss it, um, obviously in a little bit more depth, and we'll agree it's the best possible mortgage solution. At that time, it's then it's time to submit a mortgage application. Okay. Now, to submit your mortgage application, you need to have a solicitor because that forms part of the application. Lenders want to know who your solicitor is. So you need to instruct a solicitor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now, solicitors come, as it, come at a cost, unfortunately. How much that costs depends on the solicitor that you're using, the property that you're buying, the price of it, if there's any quirky um, parts of the property that you're buying, um, things such as gifted monies, if it's a leasehold property, any adult occupant, adult occupants, these can all influence the cost of your solicitor. Mm-hmm. So have a chat um, and yeah, make sure you're happy, happy with the price. Um, mortgage application will then be submitted. You know, how long that takes um, as of today, Averaging probably less than two weeks. Mm-hmm. But when the market's busier, it can take a little bit more time. Um, if you have your application submitted by a mortgage advisor, it should be accepted. Um, once that's accepted, mortgage offers um, issued and you know you are able to finance the property. Um, things are, are go. Um, that's when you'll consider, consider things such as a survey, if you haven't already. Yeah. So search and surveys, I didn't realise how many of these take place when you buy a first home. Yeah. How much, I know you are not a solicitor, yeah. but you are very, very well versed in the process of mm-hmm. buying your first home. So what sh- what's normal and how long should these realistically take? So surveys and searches are two slightly different things. So yeah. I'll talk through surveys first. So surveys, there's three types of surveys. There's a level one survey, which is a valuation of the property. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have your mortgage application, a lender will actually complete their own valuation just to check that the property's fit for, for their lending. It's not really for your use, uh, but you'll, at least you'll find out if the lender's happy with it. For they your, always come, the question, do they always come out and look at the property themselves? I've heard that they do a lot of it digitally nowadays. So, or will they, because I, I, you know, is that the yeah. case? Do they come out and look at it or? So they don't always. Sometimes yeah. it's physical. They'll send out a valuer. Sometimes it is desktop. Yeah. So they'll go online and they'll find out if what we've given is the value matches the information online. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on the lender. It depends on the loan to value. Right. It depends on a few different details, but okay. yeah, it, it could be either. But when you instruct your own survey for the property that you're buying, that's for your use as a buyer. Mm. So that's for you to find out this home I'm buying is it, is it is it okay mm-hmm. or is it not? I always say to people, well, surveys, first of all, are optional, but they are advisable. I always say you wouldn't buy a 200, 300, 400 grand car and not have a mechanic check it over. Yeah. So uh, there's so a level- your advice would be don't skip this. It, it costs money, but like yeah. so many things can come up in surveys as well that you just, you, you can't see with like the naked yeah. eye. Like the roof is slanted or like all those kinds of things. So the house I'm buying- um, just had my survey back yesterday. Roof needs re- replacing. Um, right now. So that's a huge... In the next couple of years. Great. So so with that, <laughs> I wouldn't have... Uh, you know, I'm not a roofer. No. <laughs> I'm not climbing up on the roof. Um, and so now I know that. So when this happens, you've got a decision to make. Um, one, you know, do I want to pull out because it's going to cost too much and we can't renegotiate? Yeah. Um, two, do I want to just crack on? 
I'm fine with it. I can pay for it. Yeah. Um, or three, renegotiate yeah. and potentially bring the purchase price down um, and come to a happy medium with with the seller. It's not always possible, but that's that's why you get the survey so you know, um, you know, things that you know I I couldn't see. Um, and then you're informed about them. Mm-hmm. Then you can either, you know, pull out, as I say, or, or move forward, at least knowing where the issues are, have an idea of time scale and um, when they're going to need to be, you know, the improvements are going to need to be made and, you know, future future costs because homes cost money, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately so. Um, and then the whole, um, that's all the survey side yeah. of things. But then the, did you say there were three types of surveys? Yeah. So we've gone through two. Yeah, so there's your level one um, valuation. Um, there is your level two Rick's Home Buyer Report. This yeah. is what most buyers will get. And then there's your level three full structural or building survey. Now, whether a level two or level three is most suitable, just get advice from a surveyor. But generally speaking, level three will be for older properties, yeah. um, sometimes specialist properties. But always speak to a surveyor and let them advise on what's most appropriate. If you're going into a new build, is there anything you should know that's different? Because in theory, it's just been built. So there shouldn't be any like roof issues or... So, so most theory. of the time you wouldn't get a level two or level three survey, but there is an option for something called a snag report now. This is quite new. Okay. Um, but there's a lot um, of companies on social media now who do a great job because when you, when you buy a new build, there will be snags and a snag is essentially little issues with the property. Yeah. The door's not on properly. The brickwork's not perfect. Um you know, issues with the windows is the mold. Um, so a snag, um, a snag company will essentially turn up to your property and let you know exactly where all of the snags are. Because again, most people might not be able to tell. You're not going to be an expert when you're first walking into your first home and going, oh, like yeah. this plug isn't put in correctly or like, you know, or, exactly. you know. Yeah. And then you've got your snag report. You can give it to the builder and say, these are the issues that I need sorting. Yeah. Please, please sort them. Exactly. But generally when you buy a new build, um, the builder will give you something like six months for snags okay. where they will come back and repair the snags. Um, but it depends on the builder. Have that chat with them. But yeah, snag reports, um, I would recommend them, to be mm-hmm. honest, because my first home was a new build. Okay. Lots of snags. Some of them crop up over the months. Um, yeah. You know, again, because I'm not an expert in that area. So yeah, it's well worth having a look into it. Mm-hmm. So those are all the surveys then. And then your solicitor will conduct some searches as well, which yeah. takes a bit of time too. Yeah. So this is unfortunately a part of the process where it's, you know, how long does it take? How long is a piece of string? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. Um, reason being when they're selling, they're sending off a multiple searches, um, you know, it, it can be out of the solicitor's hands, how long it's going to take to come back. So the solicitor part of the, you know, that part of the process where your solicitor is completing all of the legal work associated with buying a home, including your searches, you know, on average, we say around about 12 weeks, can take a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can be frustrating for people, but yeah, it's, you know, you should, you know, keep an awareness that your solicitor is working for you. There is, you know, with, with things such as the searches, you know, we're looking to find out information that's going to, you know, put you in the best position for buying a property that you love. Mm-hmm. And all of these things obviously have like individual costs as well. Like I think often when we think about buying our first home, we just think about the deposit, but when people are getting ready to buy their first home, what should they also be thinking about? Because all these things that we've discussed as well, mm. you know, what should they have? They should have X amount for deposit. And then what are the other things that they need to be saving money for? Yep. So solicitor fees. Yeah. Survey fees. Mm-hmm. sometimes mortgage products will come with something called an arrangement fee. 
Mm -hmm. um, depending on your circumstances, it can be avoidable. Sometimes it can be up to £999 for a residential mortgage. Um, I would say it's around about 50-50 whether or not a product has an arrangement fee. Um, but it's just something to be aware of. Um, if you need to, hopefully you can avoid them. Um, as well as that, mortgage advice fees. Every mortgage advice is different. As we've mentioned, the charge, charge fees at a different time. And, you know, your mortgage advice fee could be anywhere from zero to a thousand pounds, depending on the advisor, but also your own circumstances. Do you have specialist needs? Adverse credit. Some advisors will charge a little bit more. Um, some advisors, you know, sometimes the self-employed market, it can be a little bit more complex. Um, so yeah, have an early chat, understand from everybody who you're working with, what the costs are, when you need to pay them, um, so you can make a plan and you're comfortable and there's no last minute panics mm. when, you know, you get a bill through the door. One of the things I really, we haven't discussed and I really want to quickly cover stamp <clears throat> duty for first-time buyers. Doesn't yeah. exist, does it, for first-time buyers or it's wiped for first-time buyers? No. So nope. there is something called stamp duty relief for first-time okay. buyers. Um, so stamp duty relief, I'll be honest, off the top of my head, I can't, it, it changed over the last two years. I can't think of what the, the, the threshold is right now. Mm -hmm. um, but stamp duties. Stamp duty for first-time buyers. Um, yeah, there is a, a little bit of relief there, which means that um, you're not going to have to pay um, it up to a certain amount, whereas mm -hmm. other people, you know, non-first-time buyers might what have to pay it. What is stamp duty? Because I feel like it's like something that we just don't even consider. So it's stamp duty land tax. So it's essentially a tax on the land that you're purchasing. Yeah. And the property that sold. you're purchasing. So if you're, for example, you're paying stamp duty, I guess, for the first time now, because you're moving into... So no, no I'm, I'm under the threshold. Uh, okay. um, so yeah, under the threshold still, even for a home mover. Okay. Um, but when you work with your solicitor and they provide a quotation for their services, most of the time they will give you an idea um, of what the stamp duty is going to be. Right. Okay. And therefore you're aware of it. Let's take a quick pause for a second. If you're an OG listener of the podcast, you'll know I haven't always had the easiest ride with my mental health in my 20s. Our newest paid partner, BetterHelp, which gives you access to online therapists, is something that's helped me immensely. With BetterHelp, you can have your therapy sessions as a phone call, a video chat, or even via messaging if you prefer that. Whatever is the most comfortable version of therapy for you. To get started, you fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you'll get matched with a therapist, in most cases within 48 hours or less. You'll then be able to schedule therapy sessions at a time that's convenient for you. Click the link in the description or visit betterhelp.com forward slash talk 20s and that link will also get you 10% off your first month too. Early. Okay. So I think that has covered, you know, in such a short space of time, so much of the house buying process, but I'm sure there might be people who have really specialist questions and want to ask you a little bit more. Where can we find you on social media for all of those people listening right now who are like, that was so helpful, but I have a really specific question that Gabby hasn't asked you. Yeah, so my main social media is on Instagram and the page is at Dan Does Mortgages underscore. Mm -hmm. Dan Does Mortgages is the, is the tag across all of my social media. Mm -hmm. Instagram's the main page. Um, and yeah, you know, people can send me a message, get in touch, have a chat through their circumstances, whatever the worries are, mm -hmm. um, and hopefully, yeah, make them feel a little bit better. And hopefully, you know, our most popular episode of the Talk 20s podcast ever was one we did right back in the beginning that was all about the home buying process. So to have another updated one yeah. in like, you know, in the bank that people can refer to, which I think is even more detailed than we went into last time is so valuable. Like I think so many people are going to be able to listen to this, take away so many tips and so many steps. So thank you so much. Cause I feel like I've absolutely 
bombarded you with questions mm-hmm. and you have just provided tip upon tip upon tip. So hopefully this really gives our listeners a great place to start to buy their first home because I know it is such a goal for so many people as well. It is in the market is ever changing with property prices or mortgage interest rates. It's ever changing um, and information can change with that or advice can change with that. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's important. Hopefully people find plenty of value in it mm-hmm. um, and yeah, hopefully we'll help help some first time buyers. Amazing. Well, we always end the podcast and we haven't chatted chat too much about you and like your background and everything like that, but we always end the podcast by asking our guests this, the same question that we ask everyone. And it's if you could look back mm-hmm. at 20-year-old Dan and give him one piece of advice to see him through his 20s. It doesn't have to be house-related or to do with your job, but what would you want to say to 20-year-old Dan? Okay, so if it's not house-related or mortgage-related, it would honestly be just relax. Really? Just relax a little bit in terms of worrying about... You don't have to tick certain boxes. You know, I think personally, I, I've worried a lot over, you know, I've just left my 20s, I'm 30. Yeah. Um. You know, am I earning enough? Where do I need to be? Yeah. Um, am I in the job I want to be in, Um. in the past? And yeah, you know, just relax a bit. Um. It's good to plan for the future. It's important to plan for, for the future. But, you know, there's probably no, nothing wrong with where you are now. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit before about having shit jobs in our 20s and how it's yeah. kind of like a rite of passage. And, you know, sometimes we have to go through it to know what a, a good job then feels like, you know? Absolutely. So you can learn, you can learn where you don't want to work. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and there's this, and there's, there's a lot of value in just working hard on a job that you don't love and getting through it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I've worked jobs in the past that, you know, really just weren't for me, mm-hmm. um, but I stuck at it had good results and they actually led me on to, to better roles yeah. and ultimately to where, to, to the job I do today. So yeah, there's value in getting through it, working hard um, and yeah, sticking at it. Thank you so much for all your wise words on buying your first home. I am so grateful for everything that you've shared in this episode and I cannot wait for everyone to listen. If you've enjoyed this episode, we've got plenty more coming your way. Make sure you are following or subscribe to the Talk20s podcast and we'll see you next week.